Good morning. We are in the midst of our series on breaking the rules, the six man-made rules that hinder us from a good relationship with God and each other. Now, if you're watching this for the first time and you haven't seen the, uh, the earlier videos, I want to encourage you to go back and watch them because they set up what we're talking about today and you actually need to hear the rest of them. Now, the rule today, the last rule we're talking about breaking is don't change. Now, Dan, this is ironic. All around us, things are changing. Nature's full of examples of change, like this one. Oh, Dan, I love that video. It's an amazing story. You see that worm change into that butterfly like that. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, that is incredible. I'm not sure I really go for that uh, ugly caterpillar, but um, the butterfly is just so much better than, than the caterpillar. It is amazing how something so ugly can be, become something so beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They talked about how the, the former self was gone and the new one came out like mm. it is a transformation that video wow well that brings to my mind a story that i've mentioned we've mentioned a few times already in this series the story of the exodus about 3400 years ago the descendants of abraham known as the people of israel found themselves stuck in egypt as slaves they had come to egypt as a family of brothers to be cared for by joseph Four centuries later, their number had increased to at least a couple of million, but they were a minority people group in the land. Over the duration of these 400 years, Egypt experienced a leadership change who didn't know the story of Joseph and was only interested in using the Israelites as slave labor to build the nation to greater heights of success and fame. To accomplish this, he subjected them to harsh treatments Pharaoh did. They cry out to God. God hears and answers. God calls Moses to lead the exodus out of Egypt, and given Israel's deliverance from slavery, this exodus becomes one of the most defining moments in all of world history. It establishes a model of liberation from which countless oppressed peoples across the century have drawn hope. 
the Exodus becomes the benchmark for later incidents in, in which God delivers his people, especially our deliverance by Jesus Christ from sin. In reading Exodus, anyone who has ever been liberated or longed to be liberated from political or economic oppression, or from emotional or spiritual bondage, or maybe from slavery to sin, will recognize the power of Moses' confident declarations in Exodus 5.1. Let my people go, he says. And in Exodus 14.13, do not be afraid, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. So let's be candid. Very few people in our world love change. In Exodus chapters 5 to 10, the person at the top of the don't change list was the Pharaoh of Egypt himself. When Moses faced him and said, the Lord God of Israel says, let my people go. Pharaoh told him, who is the Lord God? I never heard of him. Not interested. Get back to work, you guys. So the Lord God had to do some persuading of Pharaoh through the 10 plagues, which were nothing short of an ecological disaster. After the final plague of the deaths of the firstborn of every family without the blood of lambs over the doorposts, Pharaoh finally gave up and said, please leave ASAP, get out of here. So they left Egypt crossing the Red Sea while God miraculously held the water back, apparently choking on the dust as they crossed, as scripture states, they crossed on dry land. I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 16. After successfully crossing the Red Sea, they all sang a song about the horse and its rider being cast into the sea. Everybody's happy, that is for a few weeks. Getting Israel out of Egypt is one thing, but getting Egypt thinking out of the Israelites is quite another. 45 days into their trip, they start whining and complaining. Let's read verses two and three. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So God makes it rain bread and gives them a supply of fresh quail. Then God begins giving them an orientation of post-Egypt thinking called the Ten Commandments. Those top 10 rules were brand new thinking for the Israelites, radically different than Egyptian thinking. The first four commands, how to love the only true God. The next six commands, how to love one another. Fast forward a year to Numbers 11, and the people were still complaining, saying in verses 5 to 6, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing for free. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. At least seven times between Exodus 14 and Numbers 21, the people of Israel expressed their longings for the good old days even though those days of slavery back in Egypt, Egypt were far worse than anything they were facing at that time. So Dan, that story shows how there is conflicted thinking going on in the people of Israel. They were excited about the promised land, but they missed Egypt. When things got tough, they wanted to go back. Mm -hmm. Well, this conflicted thinking 
is very descriptive of us when we're going through change because, okay, think of their change. Mm -hmm. Going from slaves to being a free people in the promised land, that's huge change. Mm -hmm. And they had conflicted thinking in the midst of that journey. Well, when we're going through change, we kind of, we kind of act like that too. In fact, I'm going to go to a, a slide, a PowerPoint slide, to show a contrast between Egyptian thinking and promised land thinking. When it comes to changing, there's a couple of mindsets we need to differentiate. The first one we might call Egyptian thinking, drawing from our model we've just described of Israel leaving Egypt. In this model, we're trying to get Israel out of Egypt, and this has primarily to do with relocation. And in this situation, we're ashamed of what we've been. We hide our sin, and we work hard to not sin. And the way we do this is through discipline and service and doubling down our commitment. And in, in this model, we are convinced that if we would just believe right and just do right, then we'd be fine. The problem is we still have emotions and temptations, and so we simply need to deny them deny that they're there, put them away, shove them down. And in this model, we proclaim victory and hope that this will make the difference, even though we're actually stuck and not able to see the victory we really looked for. In this model, it's a rational solution with self-discipline as the motivator. And it's primarily about sin management. Well, let's contrast that with what we might call promised land thinking. And in this model, we're trying to get Egypt out of Israel, actually, and it has to do more with transformation. In this model, we admit that we've got problems. Yes, we confess the sin, but we're acknowledging that it's there. And we engage a journey of change rather than trying to commit that we will never sin again. We recognize that that's a false idea. And we have to let that idea and others go as well. And instead, we're going to let Christ indwell us. And we acknowledge that there are emotions and there are desires. But here's a major transformation difference. We rest in Jesus' love and acceptance of our imperfection. Because we have heard that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we find that he has, our, he has uh, gained our heart. And when God has your heart, he has your whole person, mind, will, emotions, everything. And in this model, it's not so much about sin management as it is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And these are two very different ways of thinking. That's really good, Dan. That makes a lot of sense. Now, let me apply what you've just shared to my own life. In our previous message, Let's Choose, I shared the story about my longtime addiction to Mr. Nice. If you've never heard of this addiction before, you may initially think to yourself, that would be a nice addiction to have. Let me assure you, this addiction, like every other addiction, is anything but nice. It's an ugly way to live life because it's not real. For me, niceness was connected to some vows I had made, vows like, I will never be mean like dad, or I will always be nice like mom. When we make vows like that, those vows have a way of locking us into emotional bondage. I was on a journey to become 
a dry drunk living out those crazy rules, don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, don't think, don't choose, and don't change. When we don't live a real life, we end up doing a lot of pretending. We'll not even realize it, but people around us will know. My wife sure knew. She came to me one day early in our marriage and said with a tone of exasperation, you won't even fight with me. <laughs> I smiled back, feeling quite proud of myself. But we were on a cycle that had the potential to kill our marriage. The more determined I was to only be nice, the more anxious she became. And the more anxious she became, the more determined I was to only be nice. As the years went by in her heart, she felt increasingly pushed away by me. She realized something was wrong. I communicated only in indirect ways, often using suggestion, never outright giving an opinion. It could be the wrong opinion. She communicated only directly, never pretending about anything. As the years passed by, my Mr. Nice persona was, was keeping us disconnected at the heart level and she didn't feel loved anymore. Any addiction eventually does that. In our 19th year of marriage, Deanna came to me and said, honey, we need help or our marriage is not gonna make it. A minute later, I was on the phone with a friend who I thought could help us. He lived 10 minutes up the road. I began meeting with this man two hours a week for two years. I began walking a journey of changing and growing like I'd never experienced before at age 49 and 50. This journey had four stages. Here's what it looked like. This first stage involved sharing my life story. Throughout my story, I was real about the times in my life when I had felt helpless, when I was a victim in some way. We began looking at a number of events that kept teaching me certain things about life and relationships. Proverbs 20 verse five describes our conversation week after week. The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. For the first time in my life, I took a good look at the damage of various events of my past. These four circles symbolize my heart and soul, the sum total of my emotions, choices, thinkings, and longings. The more I looked at this, the more in touch I got with the self-protective ways I'd been living life. I discovered over the course of hours of thinking and discussion that I'd been using my Mr. Nice persona to keep people away from ever knowing who I was, to keep even myself from knowing who I was. One of the most helpful things I learned during this time was about the way I was managing my power as a husband, as a dad, as a man. When I was shown a list of manipulation tactics and told to list the tactics I was using in my relational style, I realized I was doing 11 of these all the time. I was especially good at sarcasm, and every manipulation tactic was another way of pushing people away from me. Oh, this was ugly. So as I recognized that I was far more than a victim, that I was responsible for the way I was living life, that I needed to take responsibility for every choice I was making, then I began to change from the inside out. I began leaving Egypt. I began to be free of this Mr. Nice bondage. I began to be real about everything. I, I'm still walking this journey. 
there are still things that happen that are painful, but I choose to go to disappointment instead of emotional flatness or victimhood or pretending it didn't happen. There is wonderful freedom in knowing that as I submit to God and his purposes, I'm free to be real, free to love, free to be other-centered, free to encourage others, free to let Egyptian thinking uh, leave my head, and free to challenge others and free to dream. If we could zoom in on what I needed to repent of, this is a snapshot of how each area of my soul needed to change. In my emotions, I needed to own my choices to be timid, fearful, emotionally numb, mostly out of touch. In my volition, I found it helpful to list all the choices I'd made over my lifetime that I had not recognized as choices. Some of those choices I've, I had made were in the form of vows that I needed to break one by one. One of those choices I made was to trivialize choice by embracing a Christianity that emphasized externals and image. In the rational part of my soul, I found it helpful to list out the beliefs I had had over the years and sort out the truth from the lies. Then I found it helpful to take a good look at my God-given longings to be loved with no conditions and to make a difference in my world. It was in this deepest part of my heart and soul that I'd made the big mistake of thinking that people liking me would satisfy me more than Jesus loving me. So here was my biggest takeaway from those two years of change. We sometimes try to change from the outside in when we need to change from the inside out. We can be tempted to think, this heart and soul stuff looks a little too scary, takes, takes too much time, I'm a busy person. Or there's any number of excuses we can come up with to keep us only at the surface. Sometimes it's called New Year's resolutions. For sure, it can be very helpful to set goals for our lives, but how can we ever change from the inside out without a serious look in the mirror? David was certainly thinking this way when he penned Psalm 139, 23 to 24, search me, O God, and know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Wow, Dan, thank you for telling us your story and your journey of coming out of your Egypt. Hmm. But as we listen to your story, it does bring up another question. When it comes to this matter of the heart, one of the issues we have to sort through in our understanding is this matter of dying to self. There's been a lot of preaching about this, and we need to make a very careful and um, thoughtful distinction between what we might call the false self and the true self. Now, in the false self, uh, we actually find that early on in life, if we have had trauma or shock or stress, actually it doesn't matter when this happens in life, but it often begins early in life, we develop a, a way to manage the fear and the anxiety that comes from the pain of this trauma and shock. And God actually has given us this gift of being able to differentiate ourselves. In fact, sometimes the trauma is so severe that people develop multiple personalities, like they're able to say, well, that's not me. I'm over here. That didn't really happen to me. And there's, it's a way, actually, of being able to 
to manage and take care of this tender self, this tender person that's within us. And what happens here is that there is a preoccupation with taking care of the self and understandably so because we're, we are in pain. And uh, this self-focus can be manifested in a couple of extreme ways. One way is pride by overstating who we are and pretending to be what we're not. Or this sense of unworthiness and just feeling, feeling like I'm just nothing. I'm never going to amount to anything. And in the essence of that, it's we, we wish we were someone else. And this is why it's easy to be jealous or envious of other people because they seem to have their life together. But we feel like we need to earn our love and our acceptance. And that's why for those who are really caught in this false self-image, uh, image is a big deal. Posing and pretending is important to put up the right front. And when it comes right down to it, our basic identity is, I don't measure up, so i got to try harder. So let's contrast that with what we will call the true self. And in this model, we recognize that the identity that we have formed in our false self is actually not a good one, and it's not a true one. We need a new identity, and that comes in Christ. And when we come to Christ and confess our sin and find out that he actually forgives and welcomes us, we feel safe in the love and the acceptance that he offers. And we feel this love so well that we then, in turn, are able to love others. We sense that God loves us and that we are worthy, and consequently, we can respect other people and the worthiness that they have. We no longer have to perform, and so that means we don't need to judge anybody else. And what this does, folks, is gives a rest for our heart. You can just rest. You can relax. You can be authentic. And this is when the true person begins to emerge. And so rather than beat ourselves up about the false self, how about we grow up to become the true self in Christ? And it's only in Christ that we're able to actually flourish and become the beautiful son or daughter that he intended all along. So when the Bible talks about dying to self, what it's referring to is this false self. This is what we have to die to. This is the self-constructed way of defending ourselves. This is the strategies that we learned through our dysfunctional ways to try and protect ourselves. We have to die to that image and come into this one with Christ, this true self that he offers us. And that's where it talks about losing our life, the false self, in order that we actually come alive, which is our true self. And that happens in Christ and through him. That's really interesting, Dan. Thanks for sharing that. That makes a lot of sense. You know, there are certain verses of scripture we can easily misunderstand when we read them through the lens of a flawed view of our personhood, or maybe we are reading them through the lens of the six rules that we're learning about in this series that minimize our dignity. One of those principles I misinterpreted in my earlier years is the principle of dying to self. This shows up in Paul's writings such as Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Or John 12, 24 and 25, I tell you the truth, Unless a kernel of wheat falls the ground, on the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 
This teaching goes like this. This isn't necessarily taught like this, but this is how this teaching eventually plays out. Don't live by feelings, so don't acknowledge your feelings. Don't feel. Don't live with any pain. Don't live with any tension. Thus, we live with no reminders of how much we need God. This leads to not trusting God, which leads to protecting myself, which actually results in living alive to self, which is the exact opposite of what we claimed we were aiming for, which is being dead to self. We're calling this dead horse thinking. You know, I've actually been told, if I would be like a dead horse and someone stuck a pitchfork into me, I would never again be offended. You know what? I told that person, God is not calling me or any of us to be a dead horse. He's calling us to be fully alive, leaving our Egyptian thinking behind and embracing promised land thinking. Here's a far more biblical way of thinking about dying to our false self. We start by breaking the don't feel rule. We read the dashboard to get in touch with whatever emotion is there. We acknowledge our feelings and ourselves to God. If need be, we struggle with our feelings. Jesus certainly struggled with his feelings many times, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. We feel the loneliness, the disappointment, the fear, whatever is there. We don't pretend it's not there. In the midst of whatever emotion we are feeling, we choose to trust God. We take the risk. We commit ourselves to relationship to him. We express our confidence, as stated in Romans 8, 38 and 39, and these two verses have changed my life. Nothing can touch me, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can ever separate me or us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this sets us up for living dead to our false self, which is being dead to that false persona that we created early in life to protect ourselves from re-experiencing shock or trauma or stress. Let me share another word about change. When we change and grow at the level of the heart, it can certainly feel like foreign territory. It could be like this. For years, we've been driving on a six-lane highway. Everything is familiar. Every car around us is headed in the same direction. But we're going the wrong direction. Then we realize life isn't working for us in some ways that we need to change. There are some lies and vows we need to renounce. It may feel like we're way off the beaten path. It's pretty hard labor, and progress forward is pretty slow. But we keep at it. We stay the course. Eventually, the path we've cleared looks like this. Not very wide, but wide enough. Give this new change enough time, and eventually, the path widens to a nice dirt path and widens some more to a gravel road. Then in a few years, it feels like this roughly paved road. And after a few more years, it feels like this. Still lots of curves, but looks increasingly familiar. And all the while, we remember that that six-lane highway going the wrong direction, it actually may not be that far away, just the other side of the bush. We could get back on that highway if we chose to. 
but that highway hasn't been used in a long time and it's not been maintained. So it looks like this with potholes, broken asphalt. We remember those days when we drove on that road, but we don't drive there anymore. That road represents the road back to Egypt and we choose to not do slavery anymore. Why is that? The Apostle Paul nailed it when he wrote in Galatians 5, verse 1 and 2. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Then, just to underscore his upcoming exclamation mark, he continues, Indeed, listen, mark my words. So the reason we don't go back to the way we used to do life, the, the way we, we used to relate to God and one another, is just for the sake of freedom. It is for freedom that Jesus has set us free. <laughs> Here's what this path out of Egypt looks like for me today. It's a bit windy, but it's a nicely paved two-lane road. Been on there for a number of years, a few decades now. In 20 years from now, here's what my vision of what the pilgrimage will look like. As David wrote in Psalm 84, 5, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Oh, yeah. And you know something? It can become this way for you, too. You, yourself, can change for good. I don't care how old you are. If you're willing to change from the inside out, anything is possible. Oh, Dan, your story's a real point of encouragement to hear the joy that you have of having come free from your Egypt. You know, we, we want this freedom. We want to get off that road that leads to nowhere. And we're ready to change. And we're tired of crawling around like a worm, just devouring everything around us. We'd like to be freed and transformed to fly like a butterfly. We're thirsty for this. Now listen to what the prophet Jeremiah describes our condition. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Now Jeremiah is talking about the two primary ways of water in the land of Israel. There's cisterns, and they look like this. Here's an actual picture of a rock-hewn cistern that was discovered in Jerusalem. And you can see the ladder that goes up to the hole up, up in the top of the ground there where they have dug down into this rock and they have literally hewn out the rock and carried it out that little hole to make the cistern. You talk about hard work. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is that these rocks are cracked. So you have to plaster them in order to make this watertight. Mm -hmm. And the problem with the plaster is if you don't maintain it, it eventually leaks out. Now compare that with this second source of water in Israel, and that is the streams that come out of fountains. They flow freely. And this is the contrast that Jeremiah is saying. Why have you chosen cisterns that are cracked and don't even hold water, and, and there's living water available for you right there? Now that image from Jeremiah was picked up by Jesus. And it's written in the last book of the Bible, the last chapter, and the last scene. In fact, if you look at your Bible, here's, here's, a, here's a copy of the Bible. 
This is a thick book. We're talking about thousands of years of history. And at the very conclusion, this is what it says. This is the climax scene. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. And oh, friends, that is the invitation for all of us. We don't have to stay in our slavery. We don't have to be drinking brackish water. He's offering us living springs of water from him that will actually enter our soul and become like an artesian well within us, a well of joy, a well of life. And if that's something you'd like, why don't you pray and ask him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are stunned by your offer. And when we look at what you're giving us, what you're offering us, our heart yearns for it. We are thirsty. And we're so thankful that you have said that it's free for all who will ask. And so, Lord, we're asking, would you give us your free, your free living water? Would you wash away the brackish water of our soul? Would you release us from our slavery to ourselves and to our fears and to our anxieties? And would you put your spirit within us that gives us life and light and like a spring of water welling up within us, just gives life to us and everybody around us? And Lord, that is our prayer. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen.